Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged devil bill. This week, an American werewolf in London howls at the bad moon. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I'm Thomas Mariani, here recording this lovely night. In fact, let me look out the window. Oh, it's a... It's a full moon! Oh, no! Yeah. I'm Adam Thomas, and, uh... I'm looking out the same window. Doesn't look like a full moon to me, so I think Thomas just has indigestion from his enchilada dinner. That's true, but I'm good now. I'm good. Old El Paso always gets to my bladder. <laughs> Shout out to, by the way, my, my foley of literally two paper towels. Uh, <laughs> hey. the ripping sound. Very good. Uh, where's my sound design, Emmy? I'm like a real Ben <laughs> Bird over here. Move over, Rob Bochin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome everybody to the Double Edge Double Bill, uh, where uh, you know every week we cover a good and a bad movie related to a certain topic. And of course, uh, during October, this is our last big episode of October. We always like doing horror stuff throughout the month, and we're ending things on an episode that has always been in the back burner, one that we've wanted to do, but you know just haven't quite lined up in terms of uh, you know appropriate film release or whatever. But we put it up to our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod, who ended up choosing the ultimate choice of um, the, this last topic, which was either going to be witch-related films or the ultimate winner of werewolf films. Werewolf. Their castle. <laughs> we're not yeah. werewolves, we're swearwolves. Yeah, right. I switched the joke because that's technically more of what we are. We are swearwolves. No, we are definitely swearwolves. Yes, we yes. are... Definitely, definitely swear fucker. But yeah, I'm glad this got chosen. I, I am. I've, I've always been a werewolf fan uh, ever since a young tyke, uh, you know, got to be a werewolf for Halloween. I've always been into them. Really, both styles of werewolves, both, uh, you know, on all fours or, you know, on two legs. I, I like them both for different reasons. I, I like the lore behind werewolves. I like. I just. I just think they're fucking cool. They're fucking scary, and I like the idea of it. As you see in Ginger Snaps, sort of their sexuality and maturity coming out, or the animalistic rage. Uh, it just. It's always worked as sort of a parable. I, I argue it's one of the few movie monsters that, especially of the classics, that really still work on having that sort of underlying meaning. Well, and it's a good thing you mentioned sort of the lore and also the movie factor, because unlike a lot of, like, you know, werewolves obviously belong into, like, the universal pantheon of, like, the yeah. monsters, as we, you know, talked about last time with uh, Mr. Boris Karloff. Uh, but what's so interesting is that a lot of the other sort of main universal monsters come from, like, a specific source. Like, you got the Dracula novel, or you got Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Even The Mummy has a bit more, like, it's not based on a specific novel, but there's more of, like, a specific mythology to, like, Egyptian mummies, as opposed to the Wolfman basically created a lot of the modern werewolf lore, mm -hmm. given that, like, any kind of different culture, there's always some kind of, like, shapeshifter myth 
or lycanthrope was even a word, but it was attached to more of like a, a weird mania that people would put on, like, oh, they think they're transforming. There's so many different, various different things. And then with the 1941 film The Wolfman, really, there were a few other werewolf movies before that, like Werewolf of London and stuff, but that's the movie that really solidified, like, the full moon and howling and the curse uh, elements and all that other stuff that's really what it's very much a movie specific monster origin yeah i mean that's a very good point i would say sort of the modern day werewolf slash wolfman and then probably the next sort of big boom you had in movie created creatures would be the flesh-eating george romero zombies you know right. it, 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 they don't come along that often and even when they do they don't necessarily always have staying power i mean look how many different one-off slashers, monsters, alien movies, all this stuff there has been. But, I mean, the fact that people are still making wolf, werewolf movies, and there's some of them are still really solid. You know, I, I, I might be talking about one later that came out very recently. It's just they still are doing really, really well. Yeah, and what do you think is, like, so key to that stain power necessarily? What do you think at least the werewolf is still ubiquitous, but at the same time maybe... I would argue a bit easier to fuck up than like a vampire or a zombie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think absolutely. It's, I mean, a werewolf is easy to fuck up on ground zero if you fuck up the design. I mean, if it's a bad werewolf design, then you're not going to be able to get into the movie for the most part. Point. I, I think the reason like the werewolf movies are so successful is almost kind of alluded back to what I, I sort of mentioned. There's the sexual nature to it all but there's also the ultimate power thing and the rage behind it and the anger and you know in some cases some movies the there's immortality involved it's just i think it's sort of everyone's primal fantasy to be able to sort of unhinge and unleash at things that piss you off or bother you or you know whatever but it's you know the thing it's that you don't do that which doesn't make you a fucking psychopath but i think the werewolf is sort of the ultimate fantasy of being able to do that and just oh i'm not in control of it there is some of that there i agree but i think the bigger thing to me is the reason why you know even outside of horror this concept has been permeated like in the 60s stanley created the hulk who was basically it's a werewolf story yeah. like on every level like the hulk is very much like a werewolf thing and i think there's also that inherent tragedy that you have in like a bruce banner and you have in like especially the larry talbot character in the universal movies of just like oh it is this thing i can control this primal rage and it's just ruining any kind of a life i can have and it's completely destroying me and it's something that like i'm not conscious of it's like almost a metaphor for alcoholism in that own way too where it's just like oh i like go into my werewolf phase and then i don't remember anything i black out and i wake up the next day and i've done horrible things i wasn't even aware of because of this like part of my personality i can't control and i think that along with some of these like primal instincts that you're talking about also really affected and i think in terms of the fucking it up element a big thing is also just quite frankly it's easy to make a cheap vampire movie it's easy to make a cheap zombie movie it's very hard to make a cheap werewolf movie <laughs> yeah i mean they exist werewolves are also a little bit i mean when you really think about it sort of derivative of the sort of jekyll and hyde thing too i mean in a way so i mean yeah it's it's still based on something that came before it but it's, yeah, ultimately, I think what made it so successful is that it just sort of maybe took inspiration from other things and then just became its own, for lack of a better term, and not try to make a pun, beast. Yeah, it, it definitely feels, because even with like a Jekyll and Hyde, there are two distinct personalities versus like with the werewolf more often than not like the wolf persona is not like a personality. It's just a monster. It's just this rage filled thing that's destroying people um and you know we're covering two movies that take 
uh, very different, interesting turns of the werewolf, um, given they're both a bit more modern, one from 81, one from 1996. And uh, we picked these two at the end of our last episode, uh, where you had the bad picks, Adam, we ended up with Bad Moon, uh, appropriate adjectives <laughs> for, the, for the bad pick. Um, and then for our good pick, I, I had mine of an American werewolf in London. So we'll be talking about both of those today. And let's start off with Bad Moon. A house on the edge of the woods. Out here it's safe and peaceful. A family alone. Mom? Yes, sweetheart? Can you leave the door open a crack? A favorite uncle who needed their help. Things haven't been going so good for me since I got back, sis. Come stay with us. But when they invited him in... I think I better keep my eye on you. They let in something they could never imagine. Or ever escape. What's wrong with you? Bad Moon. It doesn't have to be Halloween to be this scary. So Bad Moon came out November 1st, 1996, um, the, the timing impeccable on that, that specific day of all days to uh-huh. release your horror film. I love, in the trailer you all would have heard right before this, there is a bit where they mention just like, it doesn't have to be Halloween to be scary. It's like, oh, guys, no. <laughs> That's, yeah, woof, yeah. <laughs> woof, indeed. <laughs> um but, uh, yeah, this is uh, from director-writer Eric Red, uh, based on uh, the novel Thor by Wayne Smith. And Thor is the name of the dog character who is in this uh, particular film. And apparently, the original novel, I have not read, but sounds very interesting, where Thor, the German Shepherd, is, like, the actual, like, POV character. Like, it's all from the dog's perspective. So it's, like, the bits of Cujo that are from his perspective, but just the whole novel... From the dog's perspective, sounds fascinating, but um, that didn't end up happening with this particular adaptation. And Adam, why don't you tell people about Bad Moon, uh, give us a plot synopsis, and then uh, why you picked it. Bad Moon's about uh, this mother and son who have a dog, and they have a really nice fucking house, by the way. Yes. Uh, who's, who's, her brother's been gone on sort of a long trip, and they might have a little bit of a strained relationship, and he comes back, and sort of they reconnect, and she invites him to come live with his trailer on their property behind their house. And, you know, he accepts and then it sort of becomes this thing where you're suspicious of him and the dog is suspicious of him. And all of a sudden things start happening in the woods and there's howls at night, big scratch marks. And he seems to disappear at night, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you've already guessed it. You figured it out the first five minutes of the movie, but he is a werewolf. And then it's sort of, on from there, what ultimately is going to what's going to happen if he turns on the mother and the son? And oh God, what? Uh, blah, blah. And more importantly, if Thor, his biggest rival, is going to face off against him? Yeah, because that dog fucking I fucks the shit out of him in this movie. Michael Perret does that a lot more though. Michael Perret starts shit. We'll get into it, but he, he I think he starts more shit. Yeah, he definitely does, and that dog's like not going to put up with it. I picked it because there's a lot of potential here. The ultimate design of the werewolf, I think, is pretty fucking solid, especially for a two-foot werewolf. Uh, that means a werewolf that walks on two feet. Not a, not a very small werewolf, I was going to say. Not like no, a no, very no, small no, You're right. right. 
Right, so, arf, 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 arf. <laughs> I think the suit design really works. I think the stunt performance in the suit is pretty solid. It's a uh, Ken Kernziger who most people know as Jason from Freddy vs. Jason. I think the dog is a really good animal actor. Uh, I think the kid from Dennis the Menace, I think he's pretty good at it. Mariel Hemingway is not very good. Uh, Michael Paré is Michael Paré. So take that how you want. There's a lot of promise here. Things could have really gelled together. It's just, it comes across just almost like a paint-by-numbers movie instead of them really going for something. Like, you get an inkling in a couple scenes, especially the opening, and some of the kill scenes are really graphic and violent, uh, but it almost feels like because I, I read and heard that the opening, they had to cut it down to avoid an NC-17 rating. And I feel like that might have scared them when they cut everything down. Well, I, I had not seen this before. I'd heard of Bad Moon and seen like clips and bits and pieces. So it was like I was curious to finally see it. And um, I would not describe this movie at all as paint by numbers. Because I think the most fascinating thing about this movie that makes it bad yet watchable is that... um. The tonal shifts here are fucking insane. <laughs> like, the opening bit of this movie, which we didn't mention, like, you see Michael Perry on his trip with his girlfriend, and they have a very graphic sex scene, which oh, is yeah. bizarre for, like, what happens later in this movie. And then the wolf attacks, so immediately you're like, okay, so there's not going to be any mystery about fucking Perry being a werewolf, because we, like, see from the beginning this werewolf attack. And then... Like, we get into, like, Mariel Hemingway and Mason Gamble as a Janet and Brett, uh, the mother-son characters. And uh, this movie becomes a family film very quickly in a bizarre way. Like, the look, the aesthetic of it, the feel of it, even a lot of the stuff where it's like, there's so much of, like, right after that horrible graphic, like, violent, like, sex scene link up and then the werewolf attack. There, it's like Mason Gamble playing with the dog and there's, like, this very chippery music. And it's just like, is this, like, a Homeward Bound movie now? And there's a lot of sequences where we follow the dog around that feel like, is this, like, going to be Homer Bands or going to be a voiceover? Where it's, like, Michael J. Fox voicing this dog's inner thoughts. And then, like, the violence that happens with the werewolf elements, it just feels like, it just shifts tone constantly. Even, like, the stuff with Michael Parade, like we mentioned, is, like, constantly mean-mugging this dog after he moves in. It's just like, is this, like, a weird comedy now? I don't know what's... Th this movie's so fucking bizarre, and it's all within 80 minutes. Like, the, the credits hit, like, 77 minutes into this movie. It's very short. It's just like, this is such a weird, fascinating bumble to me that I I was so engaged to watch, despite the fact that I don't think this holds together very well, because it's just... Who is this for? <laughs> Michael Parra. Well, every Michael Parra film is for Michael Parra, no matter what. The Streets of Fire, this, same thing to Michael Parra. <laughs> Philadelphia Experiment. Same diff. Oh, all those Udo Kier movies. No, that's not true. The Udo Kier movies were for Udo Kier. Um, but I guess what I... Let me clarify, I guess, what I meant to say by paint by numbers. Uh, I do agree tonally this movie's uh, just a whirlwind. When I said by paint by numbers, I mean, to me, at least, it's easy to tell where the plot is going before it gets there. Where it's it's very predictable to me where, where this is going to end up. It's very predictable to me where, you know, when the changes are going to happen and ultimately what's going to happen. Now, I don't know. Maybe that is just me, but I, there's no surprises in this movie as far as story. How it's done is a whole nother thing on its own. But, yeah, I just don't – I don't know. It's never one that I'm, like, bummed out that is on or I'm watching it. But it's always like, this is just a fucking – 
like this movie is wild. I get why some people are like it's an underappreciated, underrated gem. Uh, and then I get the other people are like, oh, that's a fucking terrible movie. I want to say I'm probably somewhere right in the middle of that. Yeah, I guess I would be more in the middle of that in terms of like, you say like, oh my God, I can see where this plot is going. Like, I agree, but I think it gets to those plot turns before we even are like, oh, so this is what's, oh no, it just happened. Okay, never mind. Because this movie's so fucking quick. <laughs> because it moves at such a weird clip that like you don't really like think about that stuff. What I more think about is just the fact that it takes so long for anybody to realize something weird is happening with particularly the bit where Michael Perret walks in and Mason Gamble's watching, I believe werewolf of London. And he's just like laughing, just like huh, these movies, they think this is how this works with the full moon and all that. That's not how it works. It's just like, why, why are we, <laughs> why are we questioning the logic of the, the werewolf movie? What, what, why do you have such particular issue with what they're saying here with the fictional werewolf movie? <laughs> like only somebody like, it doesn't help also that like, Michael Pere, if you tell me that somebody in this neighborhood is a werewolf and you give me a lineup of all the people in this neighborhood, immediately it's Michael Pere. A hundred percent it's Michael Pere. That dude looks like in every single moment he's in his human form, like he just got finished transforming from being a werewolf. The only way I wouldn't believe you is if Costas Mandalore lived in that same neighborhood. Well, no, then I would believe there are two werewolves and they fight each other, and that would be dope. Hey, right, then I'd believe, right. Then I'd believe, aha, <laughs> it's a werewolf team. But, yeah, no, I, I agree. There's no question who it is. I mean, he's always got fresh cuts and bruises on him. He's always in sweats. Like, there's something going on with this fucking guy. Right, and, and the audience is aware of that from the jump, but it's just more the fact that, like, Meryl Hemingway does, like, has to, like, eventually go into, because I guess she isn't, like, obviously, it's like, oh, it's a werewolf, how could I believe that'd be a thing? And then she has to, like, read the lycanthrope book that he has that Mason Gamble also discovered earlier in the movie. Of course. Because of course he has that. You know, yes, we've received lycanthrope today! Um, <laughs> <laughs> my local Barnes and Noble I got the yeah. lycanthrope book but yeah no it, that, I guess again though that's I suppose what I was getting at by paid by numbers uh, they're going to discover a book and notes uh, there it is yeah they found it okay so he's clearly the werewolf like <laughs> I understand it's 1996 and they're trying to figure out new ways of doing things but this fucking transformation of this movie is so ridiculous. Yeah, we should it's probably address really that. It's really bad. Right, because like, I agree with you about, in general, like the werewolf design and the suit, I think, are quite mm-hmm. good. The animatronics work really well. It's a menacing, scary, tough-looking werewolf. Yes. Like, I it looks like it would rip you to shreds, dude. Right, and they shoot it at just the right way to where, like, you see just enough. That's the one time where they avoid, like, the family film, like, very light aesthetic to the lighting and everything. And it becomes much more, like, an appropriate, like, amount you see enough, but not too much. And also even, like, when it is in, like, light, like, when it's in the big fight in the bedroom, which is my favorite part of this fucking movie, which we'll get to. Yes, that's right. Um, Even when you see it full on, it looks, particularly, like, the animatronics, when they do the close-ups of the face, are, like, phenomenal. It's, like, some of the best, like animatronics of this particular era like in the midnight like sort of the end of animatronics being as major a factor in movies like that during this particular cycle but the transformation is all done with uh i will say like the 0.5 version of like the black or white morphing technology like the absolute early test beta of it yeah no absolutely and the thing is it's like the one thing that they do do in it that works you can tell that they had different sort of practical effects built for like, 
you know, he'd be in one sort of one practical effect, and then they do the bad CGI morphing, and then be the other practical effect, and then they do the bad morphing. Right, right. They they were trying to do a version of the Lon Chaney transformation that like dissolves and everything, but their version of a dissolve is with like this CG bullshit. Yeah, it's really, really bad. Like, just do the cutaways, man. It would have worked. It would have been so much more effective. Especially when you had a clip of Werewolf of London, which has that same effect, where it's like, the guy goes behind a pillar and has different makeup and all this other stuff. Yeah. Very simple and cheap. That wouldn't have cost you a shit ton of CG money. Right, because it's terrible. It is yeah. really, really bad. Yeah, you know, uh, every, everyone loves to say, like, oh, you, there should be, like, a combination of CG and practical effects. This is a definite case of, uh, no, n- not in that. Not, there shouldn't have been a single drop of computer effects in this movie. Not unless you can do it just damn right. Uh, it, it, it do one or the other. 100%. Um, so, let's get to the best part of the movie. You know, Michael Perry chasing Mariel Hemingway. Who, no way are they brother and sister, by the way. But anyways, chasing her, finally gets to her. And here comes fucking Dennis Medicine Thor. And just Thor fucking him up, man. Well, no, I mean, there's a lot of lead up to this where, like we mentioned before, there are so many shots of the fucking Thor and Michael Prey, like, mean mugging each other. Just like, yeah, motherfucker, you're going to try and out me as a werewolf dog, German shepherd boy. And credit to, like you mentioned, a primo uh, who plays Thor the dog. Very good boy. Wonderful dog actor. Really get a lot of, like, pathos and fascination. And especially, I feel so bad for him during that bit where after he, like, tears up uh, Michael Perret's arm and, like, they think, oh, did he tear up that one person who had been murdered earlier? Like, the scene where he's being dragged away, I feel so fucking bad for that dog. Yeah. He's him as a good boy. Right. And, but then, <laughs> of course, Mason Gamble gets him out and then Thor and Werewolf Michael Perret have a face-off in the, the fucking kid's bedroom that is... So great because you can That's tell. Awesome. You can tell like it's it feels visceral because they add blood like makeup stuff to the dog or whatever. But at the same time, you can tell Ken Kersinger in that suit is playing with that dog, and the dog's having a fun time with him. While at the same time, there's also just insert shots like when they fucking throw that dog at the light fixture mm-hmm. in the ceiling. It's such a bad like dummy dog. Like, it's oh, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> Or when it jumps at him and they go out the window, it's like, okay, someone just literally just threw a stuffed animal at this guy. Watching some stuff about this movie and all that. So I guess there was predominantly three different dogs that were used. Most was Primo for all the the main work, the close-ups, stuff like that. Uh, the one for any time they needed the dog to settle down, it was like a 10-year-old veteran, female German Shepherd. Veteran of like being in movies who would just lay down and you know chill. When the dog lays down in front of the fireplace, doesn't move and all that, it's the old dog. Right. But then I was reading for the fight scene in particular, they got a Russian Border Patrol German Shepherd. Oh. Um, it was trained as a, you know, an attack dog. All the crew got behind plexiglass to all protect themselves and just let that dog loose on Ken Kernsinger. To the point where you see the scene where you see the dog just fucking charge him and knocks him into the desk and knocks the lamp over and all that. That actually happened. Yeah. Like, the dog was just whooping his ass, I guess, for the most part. Until they would switch with another dog, and then, you know, yeah, it was all shits and gigs. But when anytime the dog had to run and lunge and growl in that scene, it was a real attack dog. Damn! Like, that's that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, and I mean, it, it helps with, like, that particular scene. There's an interesting amount of both danger and fun to that particular bit. Where it's just like, oh, this is so silly that a dog is fighting a werewolf, but also... It is kind of fucking cool, especially the bit where, like, the dog is on 
his back, the werewolf's back, and the uh-huh. King Kersinger's just like, oh, I gotta get him off. And it just feels genuine, like, oh, there's this dog is a threat to this fucking giant werewolf, man. And it is, you know, that's the, that's the best part about it. This dog saves the day in, in every possible way to the point where it whoops his ass so much where, he, you know, spoiler alert, he t- has the dog finish him off. Right, yes, the, the, the mercy kill is done by yeah. after Michael Perry's all fucked up post-transformation just like, uh, finish me, you son of a bitch. And I just, once again, anytime Michael Parade tries to be like, super intimidating or evil, just like, yeah, motherfucker, you probably do this, and just this cute German ship like, okay. I guess I'll do that. It's so weird. It's so fucking weird, especially considering, quite frankly, that dog's a better fucking actor than Michael Paré. And Muriel Hemingway. I don't know. I didn't mind Hemingway in this movie. I thought she was fine. I didn't have much issue with her. I didn't like, especially like the opening bit where she has to do like the whole like lawyer thing to that one guy who's trying to uh, basically trick her into a lawsuit with the dog or whatever. I thought she handled it very well. And I think she's like, I don't think she's amazing in it, but I think she's absolutely fine. Especially when Paré is around, like she instantaneously becomes like a fucking Academy Award nominated actress by comparison. <laughs> How dare you? Michael Paré is a titan of film. He's been in a lot of films. I'll give him that. He's been there. He is there. And he shows up. How you doing, buddy? I'm not a werewolf or nothing. Say hello to your mom for me. I don't know. I don't know why he sounds like an old Frank Sinatra impression. I didn't mean <laughs> that's true, right? Is this Joe Piscopo's Michael Paré? But sure it's pretty that. accurate, though. It's not that far off. I, I'll just, at least give like like the thing is we've talked about Paré before. Like he's my least favorite part about Streets of Fire because he feels like the least animated amongst that mm. amazing cast. Versus here, I think I will say he is giving it his all, even if it's fucking bad. It's very entertaining to watch him attempt, especially the bit where he's confronting Mariel Hemingway during the transformation. He's just like, oh, nobody told you about my uh, predilection or whatever the fuck he says about the werewolf transformation. He's trying to be like, like monologuing evil. And he's just like, oh, man, you're fucking bad at this. You're so fucking bad. Mm-hmm. Where you going? She's like, all right, take it easy. Yeah, no, he's he's not good. He's never been good yet. For some fucking reason, and I will never understand why, I like him. I will say, I think he has a confidence here that makes it a bit more fascinating. That he's just like, yeah, I'm going to do all this silly shit. Like, I'm going to mark my territory in front of the doghouse after the dog gets taken away. Sure, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it with a fucking smirk on my face because I'm Michael Paré. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's like, there's a charm to that. I think that's the thing that makes Paré, while I think a very bad actor, at least like a fascinating presence in this particular movie. Because he's just like, yeah, I'm going to be the most maniacal Machiavellian piece of shit rival to a dog. <laughs> and he's committing, even if it's very yeah. poorly done. Just like, you know what? I respect the gumption, even though you don't have the talent to pull it off whatsoever. No, that's true. He does not. I will give you that. God bless him for trying. Yeah, I think it's, it's what makes, like I said, this movie very interesting. Particularly, like, there's the bit early on when they visit him at his fucking trailer and the dog's, like, snooping around, and Paré's just like, is that motherfucking dog gonna find my shit? <laughs> like, he's just, like, the dog's on to me, basically, at that particular point. That's so funny. Or even, the weird thing where, like, he's, like, his trailer is off in, like, the middle of, the, it seems to be, like, what, this is, like, the Northwest, right? Like, this is somewhere around, like, Washington, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and he's, like, off in the middle of nowhere in the woods, and there's this bit where he's, like, on the phone, like, hey, I loved our visit the other day, sis, and I was, you know, it made me realize that family's so important. And then they cut over, and, like, 
within five feet from him, there's a police investigation going on. And he's like, oh, can I come over to your place? Sure. And none of these cops question why the one guy who's living here suddenly leaves when the cops show up. Yep. Nobody questions why all of a sudden he's like, hey, uh, I gotta leave town for a little bit. <laughs> if that's all right. No, yeah, go about your business, sir. Don't mind. We're just gonna inspect the rest of your property and uh, everything else. But you go ahead and take off. You've earned it. <laughs> I thought that too to watch it this time I'm like wait wait what no dude you <laughs> fucking handcuffed that asshole but uh yeah hey he's super charming I guess that's the thing is like there is a weird charm to this movie even though I would not say it's necessarily good it's like I mentioned for 80 minutes it's constantly captivating just like okay we're gonna go with this particular turn with this particular tonal shift like I said anytime they focus on Mason Gamble this becomes a fucking amblin it's so weird and then it turns over just like a werewolf tearing people apart like particularly uh that that kill with like the guy who was trying to con them earlier is like mortifying to see yeah it's pretty awful right and then the kid's just like i'm on my bike like it's fucking like alan silvestri playing like what's happening yeah man bites through that one like forest worker's helmet in a very horrible graphic way and then the next kid's playing fetch and the fucking dog pees over by the trailer just like yo Thor you can't do that and just like what pee on uncle what is it uncle Ben I think is his name uh Brett uncle Brett is it Brett I thought oh, it was no, I'm ben. sorry no uncle Ted uncle Ted uncle Brett is Ted oh yeah and uncle Ben is Spider-Man's uncle never mind there can't be one <laughs> warrior with uncle Ben you guys want some rice um, <laughs> there's this bit where Michael Pere like bites the kid and he's like dying he's just like oh, you have what great power comes great responsibility and becomes where Spider-Man remember Michelangelo will paint the kitchen after school <laughs> <laughs> so stupid but yeah I agree with you man and the thing is I guess I'll go into final thoughts then for 80 minutes if you've never seen it you like werewolf movies uh, it, you could do a lot fucking worse. You know, there is a certain sense of charm mixed with confusion, mixed with what the fuckness, but then really brutal gore and a very graphic sex scene in the beginning. And I mean, a Scream Factory put out a fucking version of this, so you, there is a really stellar, clear version out there. Um, if you want to see sort of the practical effects and all their glory, which are really good, and also that version apparently inserts more of the stuff that was deleted from the opening scene. That's what and, I. That's what I've heard. And depletes yeah. a lot of the use of the CG for the werewolf transformation. Oh, that's probably for the best. But yeah, you know, again, it, it's. I don't think this is a good movie. I would never say Bad Moon's a good movie. Uh, but I think it is a very fascinating sort of just out of nowhere werewolf movie, you know, in the mid nineties. So it's better than a lot of other werewolf movies out there, but there are also a lot better than this. Yeah. I would say this definitely fits into like the so bad it's good kind of thing that we love talking about on the show. I think that's where it fits in terms of just like, it's so baffling with all the choices it makes. Yeah. At the same time, there's a lot more professionalism with especially like the werewolf practical effects and even like some of the um you know the sequences in terms of like how they're constructed with like the actual like the, the gore and all this other stuff even the dog acting slash fighting stuff like that there's like an interesting fascinating element to this movie that like despite how bizarre it is and all the many tonal shifts it's never boring 
constantly entertaining, even if it's just in a way of like, okay, this is a fucking weird decision, but okay, we'll go with that. And yeah, like it hits fucking credits by like 77 minutes after a very weird jump scare ending. Where it's like, oh, we're all safe, we're all good. All of a sudden, werewolf version of the dog is like, Meryl Hemingway wakes up like, oh, oh, I guess we're all good. And then it ends. Weird? And, yeah, right. You get that really strange werewolf dog, which if you like freeze frame it or look it up online, it's a very weird looking thing. I definitely had to pause it. That, that fucking puppet is the bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre. But then, yeah, for it just to be like, are you okay, mommy? Yeah, I'm okay. Oh, Thor, you saved us. You're such a good boy. <laughs> Credits. You're like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. It's very, very bizarre. Yes, but uh, I would say worth watching. It's a fun, uh, so bad it's good kind of watch for the Halloween season, for sure. But let's get into a movie that I think has a bit better mix of its varying tones. An American Werewolf in London. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. American Werewolf in London. Something different. So, an American Werewolf in London uh, came out August 21st, 1981, um, and is uh, directed and written by John Landis, which we should probably address this right at the top. Um, John Landis is a guy who, you know, before this movie, got to start with making a lot of uh, big comedies like uh, Animal House and Blues Brothers. And is a guy, you know, we've never covered one of his movies on the show. Um, and I think it's mainly because despite the fact that he's made many good movies, um, mm-hmm. considering what happened, especially like right after this movie, he worked on Twilight Zone the movie. And we're not going to bring up the details of that. You can look it up if you want and bum yourself out. Pretty um, well documented. Pretty well documented. Pretty well I would like to throw that out there. No, not just even like the horrible circumstances of that particular production and his involvement in them, but also uh, just a lot of stories about him being an asshole, apparently to people on set. Also, he sired Max Landis. So, yep. Yep. A lot right. of comments towards Eddie Murphy. Right, while they were making either Beverly Hills Cop 3, I think, or Coming to America, whichever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So, um, basically, uh, despite the fact that Landis has proven himself to be talented at certain points in his career, uh, we're not fans of him. If we praise things about this movie, it's not necessarily praising that dude, because, quite frankly, fuck him. Yeah, no, yeah, no, fuck that guy. Completely, completely, completely. But I guess we're kind of in the weird position here, aren't we? Because there's going to be things about this movie that we're going to praise that we really like that he had a direct hand in making us like. So, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I could say, hey, I like this movie, and he made a lot of smart, talented decisions. But at the same time, doesn't mean I like this fucking jerk. Uh, The guy has done, uh, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal movies. But uh, he's an abrasive piece of shit. Yeah. At the very least, though, uh, it doesn't seem to have much power anymore. The only thing he does now is just appear in, like, horror-related documentaries. Yep, and basically. yell and be loud. And... Right, and then Joe Dante's like, but it's John, you know, it's fine. It's like, Joe, Joe, you're better than this, Joe. Don't do this. 
That was a pretty good Joe Dante. It's It's great. He reminds me of this particular uh, 60s era film uh, called uh, (laughs) Werewolf of the Curse. Oh my god! Oh my god, it's Joe Dante. Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Welcome to the show! (laughs) I love the Tonight Show with Joe Dante. That was my favorite iteration. It lasted six weeks, but it was the best six weeks of that show. Yeah, well, it was Joe Dante week on the Jay Leno show, so it was just the two of them. The only guy with a shorter yeah. term than Conan O'Brien on the Tonight yeah. Show. But anyway, yeah. anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> so, an American Wolf in London. Uh, this was my pick, and even though, despite you know what I said about Landis earlier, um, you said this kind of at the end of our last episode when we ended up picking it, and uh, I completely agree that this to me feels like the quintessential perfect werewolf movie. There are other like werewolf movies that are like very iconic in their own way and created things like The Wolfman, obviously, which this movie's heavily indebted to. But at the same time, I think this is the ultimate example of like how to make a werewolf movie with not just like the actual practical effects that were like very praised and Rick Baker won the first competitive makeup Oscar for uh, for his worker that's stunning and still amazing. But even like I think in the sort of discussion of the transformation element of this movie, what gets lost is so much around it is like so perfectly done in terms of like getting you invested in the characters before he turns into a werewolf. And then once the werewolf transformation happens, getting you invested in him as a character as he kind of tries to like work past this, but realizing he can't and all this other stuff, the mythology it builds. I think this is just kind of like the quintessential what I love about like when a werewolf movie is executed brilliantly. Well, I agree. You have to care about David, right? You, you have to care about just David and what he's going through. But then you also have to care about, you know, Griffin Dunn's character. You have to care about the nurse. You got to care about everybody in it. And that's, sort of the beauty of this movie and, you know, sort of the black comedic genius behind it to where these horrible situations that happen, like David waking up in the middle of the park, you know, after he just transformed and did God knows what. Now he's nude and he's got tape balloons and all. Like, it just makes it these silly situations out of these horrible, horrible things. Like, Jack's rotting corpse is still one of the scariest things I've ever seen. It's still disturbing. That little flap of skin that moves i mean it's horrifying it's so gross and disturbing but it's funny can i have a piece of toast <laughs> yeah it's a funny the way it's treated and it feels like a genuine like two buddies you know one's pissed at the other one for almost like breaking up the band like it, yet in this case he didn't break up the band he horribly murdered him <laughs> like i'd argue this is absolutely the quintessential werewolf movie and the best werewolf movie ever done you know it's one of the big things that because of this movie that became such a talking point of werewolf movies oh how was the transformation scene you know we just did it talking about our previous one and i argue that still nobody has done it as good as this it, no matter what technology has been used no matter what cgi or practical effects or who did the work or anything it's still never been this good and it's still the the best transformation scene of all time. The two sort of pinnacles really are like the, the Wolfman Lon Chaney, 1941 for 40 years after that, everyone was imitating like that werewolf design, that werewolf transformation, mm-hmm. everything. And then after 1981, it's all fucking American werewolf. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, even this year, the same year, you know, they, they, another transformation. Right, the year of the werewolf with like the howling and Wolfen and everything. It happened again. You know, the sort of crazy goblin zombie, Nazi things that bust in and shoot up the place. I mean, those things alone are super iconic and they're in one scene, which is the character design, the creature design, the weight they have to the story and to, you know, our lead character's psyche and what's happening with him. 
the soundtrack choices. I mean, where everything's about the moon. And three different versions of Blue Moon that play like yeah. one in the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end and everything, yeah. What what I really love also is just the fact that like this feels like, you know, in terms of just this isn't just exclusive to werewolves, but monster movies in general, there's always that fear of like, especially in a post-universal monsters period of like, we can't acknowledge someone is aware of like the tropes of like a horror movie necessarily. And obviously like movies had like been discussed within movies for a while, but this feels like the first example of like a horror movie where someone is aware of previous depictions of like a werewolf in particular. And it doesn't feel like it breaks any of the things. If anything, it works because their idea, because like they have um, the David and uh, Jack characters at the beginning talk about like, oh, you know, uh, Lon Chaney, uh, the Wolfman and all this other stuff. They reference specific movies as to like, oh, you know, there are these specific rules and stuff like that that we can get around or whatever. Um, and then that is just done to perfectly set you off guard of like, okay, this is what a traditional werewolf movie is, right? Like what they're talking about, Lon Chaney, that's what's going to happen here. Um, and then the werewolf we meet right at the beginning is uh, this brutal monster beast character that tears them apart. This ain't Lon Chaney. That's not what this is anymore. It's uh, that cultural expectation is to immediately kind of put you in a false sense of security right before your expectations are literally ripped out of fucking Griffin Dunn's throat. Yeah. It's this horrible demon dog creature. Uh, It's not some dude with torn jeans and a torn flannel running after you. It's not some guy who, you know, Get a, put a silver locket around him that you know stop the transformation. It's none of that shit. This thing is straight out of hell, and it is going to graphically and violently kill anything that comes across. You said it the best. This is not a werewolf like you've seen before. Um, at least I had it. I don't know if there's anything that comes close to this before this. I mean, maybe there's something out there, but uh, as far as i know this is the first one that people were really like what the fuck is this and it's really one of the first examples that i can think of where it wasn't just if they want to do a werewolf on four legs it was just a wolf and this is it's this whole creation this whole thing where it's its own unique look and it's terrifying right it's this great puppet that's designed by baker which i don't think gets enough love because obviously the transformation is what gets love but i love the design of that particular wolf like, when you see its face, there's so much character in that face, but also it's immediately unsettling, like, the yellow eyes and the ferociousness of, like, the open, gaping mouth and everything. And even when you see it walking, you don't see... They, thankfully, like, if you've seen any, like, unused footage from this movie where you can see it on all fours, it's, like, obviously not a great effect because they can't really move the legs that well and stuff like that. But they show just enough of it. Like, the most you get is during, like, the um, tube attack, as it were, in the London uh-huh. subways where you see, like, it on all fours coming out of, like, the corner, but then it stops right at the right moment. Um, and I like that what we do see, it's just this immediate, like, lunge, like, when it attacks at Piccadilly Circus and hits that fucking detective and, like, decapitates him immediately. That's the most you need to see of that thing. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. This is a perfect case of, you know, less is more. You know, this is Bruce the Shark on land. You get exactly what you need. Right, yeah, and I think it, it also really helps that, like, we've obviously, like, mentioned the David character, but David Naughton, I think, is the perfect kind of innocuous guy to where you would, like, see that dude and you'd be like, oh, this seems like a charming young man. Like, he's kind of funny. You can see why Jenny Gutter, uh, who's also fucking so great in this movie, it, right from the start, you're just immediately like, oh, I'm entranced by her beauty, but also she has this weird insecurity about herself that makes it fascinating where she's drawn to this guy who she just made like oh your friend got horribly murdered and you've been in the hospital for like several weeks 
a DTF, and it's like, okay, right. sure, why not? Let's try that. Nothing will go wrong here. Even if there wasn't a werewolf thing involved, it's like, oh, this relationship's going to end very badly. <laughs> Before, like, the werewolf thing, I think, saved you guys from a really awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. No, I agree. David Naughton, and, and this, he's, he's really good. Uh, he's not overtly handsome. He doesn't come across like he's, you know, super cool or anything like that. He's kind of a doofus, kind of a dunce. But he's got a charm to him, and yeah, you'd like maybe like to have a beer with them, or be like, I kind of wish I was backpacking with those two guys. They seem like they're having a good time, and he works perfectly as just sort of the everyman. Like he's, it's easy to sort of, you know, put yourself in his shoes because he seems like such a recognizable archetype, and he does a lot of good with that because that could be a role that is just, you know anybody could do it but he does definitely bring something to it and it really works or even the studios were trying to pressure landis into getting uh john belushi and dan Aykroyd to play those roles which i'm so glad didn't happen <laughs> yeah i forgot about that oh yeah because he uh oh yeah because he just came off blues brothers and whatnot yeah no that's uh that's definitely for the best that that did not happen because i mean big ups to god or big ups to not but griffin dunn dude Oh, he's so, I mean, he steals the movie. I mean, he's always fine. This is the first time I definitely saw him in anything. I'm just like, this Me guy's too. immediately Me like the funniest guy possible. <laughs> the great balance of tone in this movie, I think, is one of the better scenes to establish that is when, you, like you mentioned, when he first shows up, he's been mauled. And he's talking to David about, like, the only way to do this is to sever the bloodline. You have to kill yourself so I don't have to keep walking amongst here. Have you ever talked to a corpse, David? It's boring. <laughs> like, I think there's a seriousness to, like, the lead of that. And then that joke, like, works perfectly. Because, like, oh, it's still this guy. You can tell it's like, oh, this isn't just an apparition. It's like, this actual guy is a ghost haunting this man. Right, yeah, it's still his buddy. It's still his dickhead buddy he's probably gotten drunk with quite a few times or... You know, fought over a girl about or whatever. Or even talking about Debbie Klein, like the earlier yeah, on, yeah, yeah. just like that's the girl I'm going to marry. And then later on, just like she was at my funeral, she was crying and everything. Pretty great, like you schmuck, you as they schmuck. say. Which yeah, I think yeah. is another big credit to this movie is the fact that um, there's a great video essay on the the Arrow Blu-ray that I got recently. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, where uh, uh, from this uh, video essay is uh, John Spira who talks about the fact that this is distinctively like a Jewish movie in terms of Landis is Jewish. And these two guys, they say like Yiddish words all the time, even like the uh, Nazi werewolf creatures that show up um, in that dream sequence. It, the, the way Spyro described it, it's kind of like, this feels like the ultimate post world war two movie about being Jewish in terms of just like, it's about like that constant worry about like, oh my God, will someone find out who I am, quote unquote, will whatever like fascist regime that might rise up try and, you know, destroy me at some point. It, it feels like it's uh, a movie about sort of like a lot of those inherent fears culturally kind of manifesting in the form of a werewolf for this Jewish guy who feels distinctly Jewish at the same time that he is the everyman. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I obviously I can't speak too much onto that because A, I haven't seen the documentary and B, I'm not a Jewish man. But that absolutely makes sense. I mean, that absolutely 100%, you know, it's there on the screen. That's the way it was meant to be. It's there. And if not, it's there. Like, you could still easily interpret it that way. And I don't, you know, sometimes because you'll hear those about movies, uh, you know, where like, this is clearly a parable or a metaphor for the, and they'll talk to the director or even the guy who wrote it. Like, no, not at all. People just want to find something. 
you know, which is fine. That's the point of film. But I, I can definitely see that maybe being the point in a lot of those scenes, especially like you said with the Nazi werewolf creatures. I mean, that particular, the whole element of like that they're destroying this Jewish home that clearly has a menorah on the chimney and everything. There's a lot of that, those elements too. And I, obviously, I'm also not a Jewish man, but that uh, I would recommend. Like I said, that video essay like points all of this out, and it really does feel like it makes sense. But even if you don't recognize that stuff, there is still that general sort of fear like we talked about, about like that, those primal urges, like especially anytime he's like getting close to Jenny, a gutter that feels like, Oh, he's being a bit like um, animalistically horny to a certain degree, or even um, like the, just the, you know, the elements of like waking up, like we mentioned, like the whole uh, zoo sequence encountering that kid that has that element of like, Oh my God, what was I doing last night? Was I drunk or whatever? And then stealing that, those balloons and that fucking little British kid. So many great, just one scene players in this movie with like that British kid. He's just like, I think an American, a man stole my balloons. <laughs> yep. Um, or even just some of the other people like shout out to um, the, the various uh, victims who end up showing back up at the porn theater are so great. Like including uh, Michael Carter, who plays the guy who he uh, ends up, Killing on the tube, which I don't know. Do you know who that guy is in the Star Wars universe, Adam? Uh, I yes, I do, but I can't fucking place it. Um, oh, he yeah. is uh, Bib Fortuna. Bib Fortuna. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't know that until like years later, but the moment you see this guy's face, like, oh, of course, yes, that is Bib Fortuna. That hundred percent makes sense. I could see a giant like slime thing around his neck. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense. But even, like, the other people, like, the couple, I love how, like, even in death, when they come back, they're just, like, very uh, jovial about, like, oh, yes, you could just pop a gun in and pull the trigger for, like, the, the suicide mm-hmm. thing all this other stuff. Or even the the very, like, grumpy homeless men who are just, like, more annoyed that they got murdered than, like, horrified at what happened. It's like, can't say it's not very nice to meet you, Mr. Kessler. No, yeah, definitely. Well, I guess that, you know, that sort of harkens back to what we were saying earlier about this movie it's it's populated with just these great wonderful little quippy performances and just these sort of nuanced comedic characters and this great banter and these you know silly little romances not believing the story and sort of people coming around to it or are they and it's all of this really fun back and forth in the midst of a brutally violent and scary werewolf movie um, it's just, I, I think, you know, to get back to it, the, the thing that works, why this movie is so successful is I don't know that most other werewolf movies pre and post have been able to sort of capture that, that sort of deranged sense of whimsy that this movie has. Like, it, it's just a movie that is this violent and sort of graphic and about this horrible transformation and man becoming beast and everything is just a blast to watch. Like it's so fun to watch where, you know, some of the other ones, like the howling, even I love the howling, but at a time that, you know, the brutality becomes so much after a while, we are like, Oh God, or just the dourness of it. It's weirdly of kind of dour Joe Dante. I think it's the only one I can think of. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But sort of the bleakness of it is what turns you off after a while. You know, and this is not that at all. It, it's a movie where it acknowledges the absurdity of the situation. I think that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. That there's, there's an acknowledgement, but there isn't, like, a downplay of the fear at the same no, time. No, it's, it's tongue firmly planted in cheek, and then also tongue fully bursting through cheek at times. Right. 
Yes. Like they know what the, he knew what he was doing. It's an expertly crafted film. And even just like a horror comedy thing in general, regardless of werewolf thing, that's so hard to balance. And like you read a lot of the contemporary reviews when this movie came out, it's a lot of people questioning like, is this a horror movie or is this a comedy? And I think what I love is about like the horror comedy subgenre when it's done right, like in this case, is the fact that just like a horrible situation, like the bit where he calls his sister and he's just like, well, tell mom and dad I love him and is about to like commit suicide, about to like slit his wrists and then stops and then you just see the weird image of fucking a crumbling apart, decaying Jack in front of the porn theater at Piccadilly Circus. Like, come on, come here. <laughs> like, it's what's it, like within a millisecond, you're going from, oh my God, this is horrifying to kind of laughing. Or even another great scene that does that with um, probably my the funniest bit player to me in this whole movie. Miss Piggy himself, Frank Oz, as Mr. Collins coming in after David has just woken up and is like horrified like oh my god where's my friend what happened and <laughs> fucking Frank Oz is like very dry delivering just like Mr. Kessler what are you doing <laughs> it's so fucking funny even though you're feeling for David that whole time meanwhile Frank Oz is just like oh these kids they don't give a shit about what you do for them <laughs> just like fuck off you bureaucratic piece of shit <laughs> I mean I agree with you but that's the one thing too that worked about Frank Oz and a lot of Actually, Landis movies, too. Frank Oz would just pop in and just be hilarious for like two seconds and then gone. Mm -hmm. Frank Oz is comedy gold. Yeah, with a puppet on him or otherwise, for <laughs> sure. But yeah, I've, okay, we should just get to, like, we've been dancing around it, but Rick Baker's actual, like, transformation sequence is um, obviously very critically hailed for, like, at the time. It won, the, like I said, the first uh, competitive makeup Oscar only because of Elephant Man had come out the previous year and everyone was like, why aren't you on that makeup? It's like, fine, we'll have our first competitive one. Beat Heart Beeps, the Andy Kaufman robot movie for the only other nominee for Best Makeup that year. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's tremendous, obviously. And I think it's because you really feel the pain of that the whole time. Even when you see like, you know, I've heard so many behind the scenes, but like, oh, the change o heads when like his face is stretching out and all this other stuff. And just like David, uh, not inside of like, you know, the little thing where like he's able to have himself stretch out cause he's underneath the board or whatever. But the seamlessness of it in terms of like the editing and the actual shot composition and everything to hide whatever is like off camera with those effects. It just is like so perfectly constructed from like everybody involved. It is just like one of the great horror sequences in anything. Again, the greatest werewolf transformation scene of all time. Still to be beaten. I mean, I don't know, though. The ones in this one's technical sequel. Oh, yeah. So Anyhow, I don't even want to get in it. Oh, God. The Lost Before movie with Julie Delpy, yes. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Where she was supposedly going to, at one point, be their daughter. I don't know. It doesn't and matter. they kind of vaguely imply that from what I remember. I don't know. Yeah. Because the movie's bad. <laughs> anyway. Terrible film. But yeah, no, the whole thing looks excruciating. I mean, when his hand starts stretching on screen, full view, and it looks like flesh stretching, I mean, to the because that effect could look really lousy. Sometimes even today, when it's done in sort of transformation scenes, stuff like that, it just doesn't look right. And this, it looks like this dude is staring at his own fucking hand, and the way his eyes are all red bloodshot, and the teeth that pop out, and the sideburns that start to grow. I mean, the part when he's full body laying on the ground and his mitts, his torso is stretching and breaking and cracking. I mean, I know how it's done. I've seen the behind the scenes things and everything. But even when I watch it, I can't even fathom that that's what they're doing. 
this is one of those effects that still to this day, when I watch it, I, I just I forget that I knew how it was done. Like it's almost like a magic trick that you know how you know how they do it, but when you see it and it's done expertly, you forget you're just blown away by it. Which is a big credit also to Naughton, of course. You like really feel the pain off of him at the same time that you see it physically with like the effects that are going on. Even as like horrific and upsetting as all this is, they're still able to sneak in a great cutaway to that fucking Mickey Mouse doll that cracks me up every fucking time. <laughs> when Naughton is like literally reaching out and then you just see Mickey just like look over <laughs> where he is. It's so funny. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I uh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's great. Again, like I said earlier, for them to just, this horrible, just amazing, beautifully macabre cacophony of, of special effects is happening in front of your eyes that's unlike anything that's ever been done. And then all of a sudden, oh boy, you're like, what the fuck? Like, it's, it's just... <laughs> Another fact of like, I don't think it's enough credit about this movie that I especially noticed this time watching it is how many times Landis puts you in the perspective of, like, the characters are watching you as, like, a threat's happening. Like, even earlier on when they're on the moors, and they're like, oh, what the hell is that thing? I don't know. And they're, they're looking directly at the audience that whole time. They're putting you in the perspective of, like, oh, you're, like, in the place of the creature, and thus that you were, like, about to attack them. Or even in this scene where David Nunn is, like, reaching out to you, like, please help me. Like, you, you want to reach out and help him. It puts you in that immediately vulnerable position of just, like, oh, I'm in the immediate line of sight for, like, this horrible thing happening, and I want to help him, but I can. You might want to help him. I'd be moseying off down the dusty trail. That's not actually happening. But, but but that's the thing is that even on from that perspective, the selfish piece of shit perspective, you can't look away. The movie's not allowing you to walk away from it. I don't think me not helping a man who's turning into a werewolf it makes me a selfish piece of shit. I think if anything, it, it makes me a self survivalist. I don't know. I would probably at least give him like a mercy killing or something. I'd probably like shoot him to like get him out. Oh, of so him. you're a you're a piece of shit murderer. Oh man, fuck you. No, I just I, I absolutely respect. All right, well, uh, seems like you got your night full. Uh, <laughs> catch you later. <laughs> I better get home. Get to bed. Uh, my shows are on. I gotta get back to my stories. Yeah, my stories are on. I'm sorry. What time is it? Oh, I gotta go home and watch Maud. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another scene I just wanted to bring up, just in terms of like the sort of chaos that's going on, this whole finale that happens at Piccadilly Circus, like after everything in the porn theater with See You Next Wednesday, which of course is the recurring uh, Landis thing, but also the porn movie is so fucking funny. It's just like, I never promised you anything. I never met you in my life. Oh. Sorry about that. I'm <laughs> leaving. Uh, but, like, all the chaos that happened at Piccadilly Circus, I think, is, like, a great example of something that, like, Landis was able to do pretty well in his comedies, like in Blues Brothers and in Animal House. Just that element of just pure madness that's happening. And in this case, just how many different people are, like, even, not even killed by the werewolf, just killed by, like, a traffic accident going on as the werewolf is, like, basically running around piling up cars. Like, all of that chaos that happens is so beautifully done, all the way into the lead-up to the tragedy of, like, a gutter trying to appeal to David, and you have that brief, almost, like, acknowledgement, like, she can break through, but then it's immediately gone, he gets shot, she's crying, he's on the floor, and fucking credits! <laughs> so good! Like, such a perfect way. This movie does not have any kind of fucking fat on it whatsoever. It is so lean. It's 97 minutes and, like, ends perfectly. I'm like, we don't need an epilogue. 
We don't need anything else. We're done. Bomble to bomb to bang to bang bang. It's like that blue Marcel's blue moon. It's a perfect fucking ending for a movie. Yeah, I completely agree. And especially with there's no fat on this movie. There's not one part of this movie where I feel like it sort of starts to lull or we're waiting for the next scene or something like that. I mean, maybe now that I've seen it so many times where, you know, I'm excited to see the Piccadilly scene or I'm excited to see this scene. So it's like, all right, all right. But I still enjoy every minute of this movie. I don't think there's any wasted frame. I, I wouldn't change a thing about this movie. Well, maybe one thing, but I think if we did change that thing, then we wouldn't have this movie. So I guess for that, you know, it works on every level. No, I mean, yeah, it's an important thing. Like, we kind of addressed this earlier, but it's like, with all the baggage about Lance at the same time, there's such a fascination to, like, this could only come from one particular person, one particular party. Mm-hmm. Even if that person's an asshole who uh, should not especially have worked that much after this fucking movie, um, there's still, like, a, a, this is a singular object that could only be made by one person at one time. Agreed. But uh, let's go ahead and go into final thoughts then on uh, an American Wolf in London, Adam. If and you have anything else to add, or you want to, like, cut the fat <laughs> like the movie does and just get, like, nope, over, and. <laughs> Uh, I'll just, I'll mean, I'll basically cut the fat. Uh, if you are a horror movie fan, horror comedy fan, horror, or werewolf movie fan, you haven't seen this, you need to do that immediately. Um, sorry if we spoiled anything for you. You haven't seen it. I highly doubt there's many of you who would listen to this episode who haven't. You know, I, I don't do it often. Uh, I probably do it more often than Thomas, but this is a perfect movie. This is a five out of five, 10 out of 10, however you want to call it. Uh, this is one of the most. Uh, at least in my personal opinion, it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. This movie had a sort of a huge impact on me as far as my taste in film and what they became, uh, at least in my teenage years, the uh, early 20s, like horror movies, comedy movies, werewolf movies, like just seeking this shit out. And I mean, this movie is, has a huge, huge part of that. I would say this and Reanimators alone probably are the two that did that. I mean, this is a perfect, perfect film. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, you know, I, I agree that like I'm not I don't do that very often saying like something's five out of five perfect, but I do think that with this movie. I think like so much of it especially also holds up so well, especially like if you were like, oh, it's an early eighties movie, is it gonna like not age that well? This movie ages really well, I think, because you hear like even though they're talking about like say older movies, still the fact that somebody is able to like reference pop culture, but at the same time it's not a movie that's just recreating like the Wolfman. Like that would have been I guess the sort of modern equivalent would be like so many movies today would kind of just do that element of like, oh, let's reference a particular movie and then maybe recreate that movie as opposed to doing something that's a complete left turn. This feels like it's a movie made by a guy like, you know, Life is Contemporary, Joe Downton, all this other stuff, raised on like watching these old movies on television, but then realizing, okay, I love these older movies, but I also know that these particular things have been done. So how am I going to maybe pay tribute to those movies, but also take a complete left turn that could, you know, only like really raise the stakes with a particular, like a, a modern sort of werewolf movie. And I think this movie does that really well with just like the, the comedy makes you feel invested. The horror makes you feel unsettled at the investment you've had in these characters. There's, there's so much to it. And I think it ages wonderfully. And it is truly one of the great horror films that transcends just being like, man, the eighties were the best era ever for all film or whatever. Not necessarily, but this is one of those like rare examples of a movie that like, no, but it, it ages beautifully like a fine wine, and can definitely be uh, enjoyed by anybody out there, even with the caveat of, you know, fuck John Landis. You made a good movie, dude, but fuck you. Yeah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you and your son. Fuck, 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 fuck you. Fuck you and your piece of shit son. Yeah. Yes. But now, Adam, let's get to our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double 
redo double redo double redo double redo double redo so the double redo is a segment we do every week where uh, Adam and I uh, reference a good and a bad movie in terms of the particular topic, where um, we each are like, hey, here's a good movie to watch, and here's a bad one to stay clear of. Uh, and we have that for Werewolves, and uh, Adam, you're going first on this, so what are your picks for the double redo this week for Werewolves? All right, so I'll, I'll do this kind of brief, at least my bad one. I don't have much to say about it. Uh, it's called Big Bad Wolf. It used to play on Sci-Fi Channel. It's one of those movies where you went to the local video store, and we saw it sitting there. I was like, oh, I got to see this. I think it might even have like a Fangoria feature. I was super interested in uh, for two reasons. One is the guy who plays the werewolf is the guy who played the bad guy in Kindergarten Top. And I always hated him because of his ponytail. So I'm like, okay, I got to see what this guy is doing at this one. And also the way that they get his DNA to find out if he's a werewolf is insane. Uh, that it even happens. <laughs> um but he's like a quippy werewolf, like he'll kill something and make a joke about it. You know, kind of like, reminds me a little bit of like the Shenard character from Hellbound. You know, the doctor is in, you know, who's afraid of the big bad wolf like that? Or I huffed and I puffed. And it's just so dumb. And it's so bad. It's so poorly shot, poorly acted. The suit design is terrible. But it, it might be one of those so bad it's good. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, but this is definitely one that like I meant to revisit before we even recorded this episode. Just hadn't had a chance because of a bunch of shit that came up. But this is one that I wouldn't mind revisiting just to see if it's as ridiculous as I remember. And then for my good, I originally was going to have The Howling, just because The Howling is a classic. But I thought, ah, that's the easy cop-out. So I went with a movie that came out uh, in 2020 and ended up being my favorite movie of that year, even though I didn't see it in 2020, but I, I went back and looked at all the other movies I saw that year. And it is The Wolf of Snow Hollow. It is another sort of horror comedy, great cast. It's There's a lot of funny parts. There's a lot of dark moments. Pretty good gore. Robert Forrester's last on-screen sort of role, and he's fucking great in it. It's kind of like a mystery up until the end. It's, it works for me on every level. I love the fact that the lead actor is not only the lead actor, but he also wrote, directed the thing. You know, a lot of times that doesn't work. Uh, I think it really does in this. I, maybe his acting isn't as great because of those things, but it kind of works because of his character. Um, I, I just absolutely fell in love with this movie as soon as I watched it, uh, to the point where I think even my letterbox review on it is, you know, yeah, this is a fucking Adam movie. It's wonderful. Yeah, um, I have not seen Big Bad Wolf. That was when you threatened a lot that you were going to cover for. <laughs> still might happen. And, and it's only because, at least at this time, it wasn't available streaming. So you were like, damn it. I yep. I, I, I can't do it now, but one day. Oh, one day. It will <laughs> happen. We, perhaps, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I have seen Wolf of Snow Hollow, and I think that movie's great. Very, uh, definitely got kind of swept under the rug in the, during uh, the 2020 pandemic stuff. But uh, yeah, I really thought it was great too. And it's a uh, Jim Cummings is the guy. Uh, yeah, not the great. voice of Winnie the Pooh. He's a younger guy. Uh, you might recognize him as the guy in the flashbacks in Halloween Kills, where he played in a deputy, which was very interesting to see. Oh, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really yeah. weird. Uh, but no, he's uh, that, that movie is very good. And I, uh, there's a lot of other great people. And like Ricky Lindholm of Garfunkel mm, and Oates is great. very good. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Forster, so many times, like, obviously with, you know, an actor's last on-screen role, many times it can be, like, an embarrassing final movie that you want to, like, no, let's think of a movie, like, two movies ago. That was a better last movie for you. But, no, this is a great last performance from him that has a lot of that frailty of his age, but at the same time mm-hmm. is a real, like, layers to his character and his relationship yeah. with his son. And we won't spoil, obviously, what the wolf thing is because that's really a mm-hmm. twist of that movie, but it's a very interesting take on what a werewolf could be. Yes. And there's, while well, at the same time having plenty of, like, really upsetting werewolf sequences, and even the weird editing with that movie, where you'll see, like, a sequence where, like, somebody's being torn apart, and at the same time, the police are, like, hurrying toward the morgue to find them. Like, it's yeah. a really interesting weird editing style that works very well for that movie. Very underrated. Very good choice. Thanks, man. And also, you know, just to quickly kind of piggyback on your Forrester thing, it is a great last point. And it's also a very bittersweet performance because of the, what happens ultimately with the character. Yeah, it's right. it's a very it's a tearjerker sort of performance. Right, and this movie also has very silly laughs in the middle of it. It balances that tone surprisingly well. When he drunkenly falls through the stove door, yes. I always lose it every time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. But uh, for my werewolf, uh, good and bad choices. I actually I do also have a more modern one, one that came out in fact. Earlier this year, that I didn't see until doing some research for the show, uh, called The Cursed. Um, initially, it was screened at Sundance 2021, and then uh, it came out in theaters in February of this year, 2022. I heard a lot of like mixed things about it. A lot of people were like, oh, whatever, it's it's not that interesting. And I watched it on Hulu, where it's currently streaming, as of when we were releasing this episode. And I was perplexed, because I think this movie's really great. Um, if you're unaware, uh, it takes place in 19th century France... Uh, where it mainly follows like this uh, very sort of a rich aristocratic French family um, and the neighboring families who are trying to weed out the Romani people. The Romani actually have claims to the land that's there. The French are trying to like say, no, it's our land and we're going to completely wipe you off the face of the earth. A lot of like initial brutal stuff with like getting rid of the, the Romani there. But uh, before they can attack, uh, one of the Romani women places a curse on these uh, silver dentures that have these like werewolf fangs on them. And uh, she buries it on the property right before she gets murdered. And the children um, are almost like psychologically drawn to this particular set of dentures. They're sort of like they have these weird dreams that all revolve around the scarecrow. That's a really great like element of this movie where like they have they all have the, like sort of typical horror dream sequences. But it's actually baked into the plot of what the curse is going on with that. And one of them, uh, you know, digs up the dentures, puts them in his mouth like almost instinctually drawn by the curse and bites one of the other kids and from there, it causes this really unique idea of what the werewolf movie is. I won't go into, like, further detail with that, but just it is an interesting sort of turn. Right from there, like, the okay, what silver dentures that compel you to bite somebody. That's immediately fascinating. And from there, there's a lot of other stuff where um, Boyd Holbrook plays a guy who's a pathologist who's trying to follow the Romani because of a tragedy that happened in his family and uh, ends up uh, helping out with trying to hunt down these sort of weird versions of the werewolf that aren't even, like, hairy. They're, like, hairless, like, white, sort of big aberration werewolves. And how a person transforms in there, it's it's all fascinating. I don't want to give away all the details, because I was so fascinated by how unique a version of the werewolf story is, at least on film. I don't know if it's based on any, like, older folklore 
or not, but I just love the way that all of this played out. A lot of great actors in here, like Boyd Holbrook, also Kelly Riley, who plays uh, the mother of the family, and if, mainly like British character actors, quite frankly, playing French people uh, that are in here. They're, they're all very good. And the various different sequences, I, as someone who's like a horror fan who often gets desensitized to like, you know, like gore and all this other stuff, I'm like, okay, let's see how this works. And holy shit, I was like on the edge of my seat at certain points. I think this one is very underrated in terms of uh, sort of not just even werewolf movies of recent, but also just of this year movies that I really dug. And I would definitely recommend, if you had heard mixed things about it, seek it out. I might be in, I guess, a smaller camp that really enjoy this, but I could see this getting, like, sort of a cult following if it's allowed to, like, kind of get more eyes on it. Um, and then the bad one I had is um, a sort of infamous Stephen King adaptation, Silver Bullet, which I remember I didn't see until last year around Halloween, but I heard so many people saying, like, oh my god, it's great, I love that movie so much, and that shit is some nostalgia goggles, because this movie is boring and dull and feels like the most boilerplate example of like a Stephen King kind of like oh it's like this town where something eerie is going on there's all this history and there's multiple drunks or whatever and it's just it, it the main character who's this kid in a wheelchair is like not has, has a lot of potential to be interesting but this like the kid actor they did not give him a lot to work with it was a pretty like dull and weird like character where like he gets like a fucking uh, jetpack bike or whatever thing at that he can, like, ride on instead of his wheelchair that his drunk uncle, played by Gary Busey, is able to build. Who is the highlight of the movie? Gary Busey. Oh, yeah, definitely. Weird. Shockingly. Like, in a lot of movies around this era, that's, like, the highlight of the movie. And he's a lot of fun. But it wastes a lot of talent to people. Like, even Everett McGill, who plays, like, the weird preacher character in this movie, who old movie but you can tell from the moment he comes up that he's probably the werewolf uh-huh. um, and then also more crucially one of the worst looking werewolves i've ever seen in a movie such a bad awful costume whoever i just i don't get any of the appeal of this movie it's very bad stephen king adaptation to me uh okay so to start off i have not seen the cursed probably because it got a lot of mixed reviews uh at least from people i know who've seen it so I was a little bit hesitant. Normally that doesn't sort of affect whether I watch something, but it just, there's a lot of things going on in it that not necessarily always my cup of tea. You know, it's, it's sort of like a period piece. Uh, it's a new sort of take on an established lore and all that. So I'm like, I'm either going to really enjoy this or really hate it. So maybe I'll avoid it for a while. But now hearing you talk about it, I'm definitely going to watch that. And then Silver Bullet, you know, first of all, it's not just some random kid, all right? It's Corey Haim, okay? Oh, that's true. Gotta, it is Corey Haim. That's right. It's Corey fucking Haim, all right, man? My childhood, Corey Haim. Corey Haim, R.I.P. Sorry he didn't leave nearly as much of an impression as he did in Lost Boys in this particular film. <laughs> I don't like Silver Bullet either at all. I, I, I agree. Gary Busey is crazy Gary Busey in it. Uh, he's fun. Uh, unfortunately, that guy turned out to maybe be a horrible piece of shit, too. Not necessarily a big shocker. But yeah, I think the most wasted part of this movie is, A, the werewolf design is awful. It looks like someone going to a furry convention. <laughs> yeah. It's Stephen King's fursona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a complete wasted Everett McGill. Because Everett, Everett McGill, Stephen King movie, creepy preacher who's also a werewolf, should be fucking gold. And it just doesn't. None of it works. Nothing in this movie works. I, I think it also is nostalgia-fueled. Because Silver Bullet came, what, 85? Yes. Okay, so I mean, I was even too young when it came out, but it had a reputation 
when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old and started getting into werewolves and stuff like that, be all silver bullet, just see silver bullet. And I mean, I didn't see it until probably my late twenties, early thirties. And I remember watching it just thinking, what the fuck? Like, what is this? It reminds me of watching like the it miniseries other than Tim Curry. You're like, what? Why do people love this so much? But yeah, Silver Bullet is a big blank. <laughs> Pow. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there, Adam. Uh, for my good, I had The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And for my bad, I had Big Bad Wolf. And then for my good, I had The Cursed. And for my bad, I had Silver Bullet. Well, now it's time while we get to the end of the show, uh, though as we uh, get to the very ending, we'll be picking our movies for next episode, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but we want to thank some people, like uh, Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music. Uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Find him at Night of Water. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. Uh, we also want to thank, of course, our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to do stuff like pick movies or topics we cover, like werewolves. You all, you know, allow that to happen, so thank you so much. And uh, also you get bonus podcasts that we put out, um, at least one every month. And uh, the plan is, as of right now, before Halloween... We will have out a media discussion uh, in our rotation. We'd like, you know, do a commentary or, um, you know, I think we do called television. But this case, this month, October, spooky season, we're doing a media discussion about the Mike Flanagan Netflix miniseries Midnight Mass, which has been in the works for about a year since it came out. And we were immediately just like, we have to talk about this. Yeah, I love it. It's amazing. Or do I? <laughs> Keep you in suspense. You'll have to Give pay the dollar to find out. Pay the dollar to find out. It's pretty fucking great. <laughs> yes yes uh well uh, and for just the one dollar you'll be able to have access to that and all sorts of other stuff we've recorded just for patrons out there for more of us uh find us on twitter and facebook at dedb pod and you can also email us uh double h double bill at gmail.com all spelled out uh and uh you can also uh find me specifically on twitter and letterboxd at not the who's tommy and i also do some uh, writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com and over at film-cred.com which just a brief shout out i was a guest uh, over on uh the film cred patreon they have uh you know some bonus podcasts over there like the one i produced film cred review with a previous guest hyle peralta but also they have one called behind the zines where um, if you become a patron, you can have access to the various zines they put out with exclusive writing that I've uh, you know promoted out here a couple times, including, like I recently promoted, I had uh, done a whole thing about The Fly uh, series, a whole an article about that. And I talked on the podcast behind the zines about just like the various different, like expanding on things from the zines. I talked about The Fly series in detail uh, with the great hosts over there. So if you become a film cred patron, you can hear me talk even more about, uh, you know, David Cronenberg and a Katie Lang montage in The Fly 2. Nice. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O. And uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network, or uh, dig into our Podbean main feed for hope, like about 200 episodes before we join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, you know, support us on the Patreon. That's cool. Money can be tight. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets more visibility out there in the full moonlit sky. Yay! We want people to listen. We want people to sort of uh, let us know they're listening. We want people 
to, uh, you know, share us around, for God's sakes. We we had to do this. Like, we need this. I need this. In case you couldn't tell, Adam isn't the social media manager. Or else every yeah. post would be just like, please listen. <laughs> or be like, please share us around. And then two minutes later, fuck y'all. <laughs> <laughs> the most chaotic Facebook yep. and Twitter feed possible. Uh, well, Adam... It's time we did our picking for next week, which, unfortunately, like we mentioned, Halloween is coming. By the time the next episode hits, it'll be past the spooky season. So uh, we uh, will be going into November. And as we've teased a couple times on previous episodes, November is a themed month for us uh, mm-hmm. this year where we're going to be doing Revember, which we kind of came up with uh, based on the fact that um, we like the topics we had listed for November, there were a lot of, you know, repeat topics that we had done previously on the show. So we're just like, you know what? How about we just do it? Fuck it. Let's, let's just do a whole month of repeating topics. You know, it's fun to revisit these things, especially, you know, just for the simple fact of uh, when we revisit a topic, it'll be the reverse for our previous sort of good and bad positions we had for the pick. Yeah. It'll be fun. Remember, remember, remember the, the remember month that we Do you remember? The 21st oh. of November. But our first topic for November uh, will be Coming of Age Films 2, which we did previously a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of in celebration of there's going to be The Fablemans, the Steven Spielberg kind of coming of age movie, and also Armageddon Time, uh, the one where, um, with Anthony Hopkins and Anne Hathaway, you know, uh, from James Gray of Ad Astra. And uh, so we decided, you know what, let's do Coming of Age again. Fun topic to do. And uh, for this one, you have the two good choices and I have the two bad, which is obviously the opposite of the last time we did that particular episode. And uh, we've each selected a number between 1 and 10 for each of our choices. So the other one we'll have to pick. Like, I'm going to pick number 3 for your good choices. And you'll be like, okay, uh, that's closest to number blank, which has this particular movie attached to it. And then, we you know, we do the same thing for the bad. But keep in mind that uh, we have the Godfather rule, where Adam and I each still have a single veto in our back pocket we have to use uh, before next May. And so if we hear, say, that choice at number three, and we're like, you know what, I don't want to cover it, the person can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. That's the person with the two choices. We'll remove that particular choice that was picked, and we have to go with whatever other choice is available. So that could happen with these particular picks. So, Adam, for your two good choices, uh, I'm actually going to go with number ten. Ah, okay. So I, you know, I like this movie. I I think... You will. Uh, I have Deuces Wild. No, I'm kidding. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) At number eight, I have a movie that I thoroughly enjoyed the one time I've seen it. So, if it's going to hold up, I don't know. But I know there are a lot of fans out there. I hope you'll like it. I hope we get to do this one. But I have the Ben Kingsley, Josh Peck, The Wackness. Okay, The Wackness is one I'm aware of but have never seen. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not going to take the cannoli on that. I'm curious to see a new movie, though. What was your alternate choice, Adam? I have another movie I have not watched yet that I know you like, that I know almost everybody who's seen it liked. Uh, it is A24's Lady Bird. Oh, Lady Bird's great. Fucking love Lady Bird. So good. Well, I haven't fucking seen it, so, you know, what do you want So, So the wackness is a lot to live up to if we're not going to do it with Lady Bird. But let's see. I'm very curious. Let's see how... That works out, but for my two bad choices, Adam, please pick a number between one and ten. No, fuck. Oh, number two. Okay. 
At number three, I have a movie I know we have both seen. We've both seen together. Uh, oh, shit. We're both very fascinated by this particular movie. Um, and it was kind of an infamous disaster when it came out only about a year ago. I have, uh, you know, Adam's favorite subgenre of musicals, but oh, one that I, I, I know he has a lot of fascination with. I have Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Um,. You know what? I'm not going to take the cannoli. I, I really want to talk about trees and trucks for fucking 45 <laughs> minutes. So I, I guess I'm fine. Get ready right. for next week, just like the whackness. It was all right or whatever. Anyway, it's time for Derek Minutes. That's going to be most of the episode. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, well, that, guy, and... that guy's not 35. He's clearly a high schooler. <laughs> True. True. But at the opposite end of things, over at number eight, I had a movie that got a lot of praise from a lot of people, but I was baffled by because I loathe this fucking movie. Uh, despite a pretty talented cast with, like, Olivia Cook, who's very popular right now on uh, House of Dragons and stuff like that, I have uh, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. I know. I don't think I've seen that. I know the title, though. It's it's a movie about a pretentious film snob kid who's like, oh, hey, let me hang out with this girl and berate her all the time. And it's like, oh, she gets cancer. I know. Cool, 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 Fun cool. Fun yeah, we yes. should have. Uh, we you could have picked extremely loud and incredibly close, just like you picked Deuces Wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Of course, <laughs> movies we previously covered as bad yeah. picks could either be and good both or bad were picks. By, and both were by bad picks, so oh, it would have been true. a double Adam feature, baby. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. But so, Dear Evan Hansen and the Wackness next time. The Wackness of Dear Evan Hansen. We'll be talking about next time. But until then, everybody, uh, you know, let's just uh, cut to the quick. Happy Halloween. Goodbye, everybody. It's like the end of the American Wolf in London. Goodbye. Happy Halloween. Silver Bullet is also a personal massager. <laughs>